So we're going to pick up our reading, because I think that new facet for this term will be uh, war. Will be kind of war and, and warfare, and that's why we're um, that's why we're turning to the book of Joshua. Um, but first, we're going to we're going to just try and pick up some of the story uh, of Joshua. We're going to um, track back a little bit uh, into the book of Numbers. And so, if you'd like to pick that up, uh, page one hundred forty-nine. Um, going to read a very famous famous story. I think you'll recognise this from from Numbers thirteen. So this is in the, the in-between time, so this is between uh, when we left off uh, Exodus, uh, the people that had left the Promised Land, um, God had rescued them, they'd come out through the Red Sea, uh, they'd been given the law at Mount Sinai, they'd done the stupid thing with the golden calf, uh, if you remember, um, and, and then they, they built the tabernacle. But this is on the journey towards the promised land. And the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out into the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. These were their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, son of Zakur. From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb. Son of Jephunneh, he's important in a minute. From the tribe of Issachar, Igal, son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, son of Nun, he's important in a minute. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, son of Sodi. From the tribe of Manasseh, a tribe of Joseph, Gadi, son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, son of Gemali. From the tribe of Asher, Sethur, son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, son of Vothsi. And from the tribe of Gad, Gul, son of Mekai. These are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. And Moses gave Hoshea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. And when Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like. And whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob towards Lebo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron where Ahiman, Sheshe, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Anak was a really big guy. He becomes important later. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. And that place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. And at the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. So that must have been one, like, bumper, bunch of grapes. Um, if it took two of them and a pole um, to carry it, it's a measure of how good this land is. So they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole uh, Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. And then they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. And they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. 
But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. And we even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. And then Caleb silenced the people before Moses, and he said, I don't know what he said, he silenced the people. What did he do? Did he say, shut up a minute. We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who'd gone up with him said, we can't. We can't attack those people, they're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they'd explored. Uh, And they said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are massive. And we saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. So they're like giants to the Israelites. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we look the same to them. And that night all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. And all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, if only we'd died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader uh, and go back to Egypt. And then Moses and Aaron fell uh, fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land. Read that again. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land. A land flowing with milk and honey and he will give it to us. Only don't rebel against the Lord. And don't be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone. But the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. I'll grab my uh, laptop and my picture. We'll leave the other reading till later on. I'm going to look at the book of Joshua. And today we're just going to do, we're just going to do a bit of housekeeping before we get into the, into the book itself uh, and a bit of backgrounding. The question is, why would you want to study Joshua? Well, basically, because I think it's time to get into battle. It, it's time to get into battle. Um, the red word up there, oh, those are the ones that are going to come up on the word searches if you need them. They're there and they're there. Um, and, and they're at the back, if that helps you concentrate. It's time to get into battle. Why is it time to get into battle? Well, it's always time to get into battle. As, as Christians, we're in a war, and I think we need to be reminded of that fact. Uh, we so easily forget. I think we sort of, we, if we're not reminded, we assume that we're living in peacetime and we're living in neutral territory. Well, we're not living in peacetime. We're living in wartime. And there is no neutral territory. It is either God's kingdom or it is the kingdom of darkness. There there are no two ways about that. We need to be reminded. And the result of forgetting that is we get really passive and we forget there's a battle on and we forget to fight and I think we need to be stirred up. But equally importantly, we need to know where the battle lines are, are drawn. Where are we fighting? What are we fighting? And we need to know how uh, the battle is fought. 
And when we read through Joshua, we're going to find some things are the same. Some of the principles are the same. Some of the principles are different. Um, But Joshua is going to remind us that we're in the middle of a battle. But before we get to Joshua, I want to put things in context. And I want to put things in their covenant um, context. And start for a moment. Let's just pick up the story uh, and frame it so you understand where Joshua comes. In the beginning, you know God created Adam and Eve. He put them uh, lovingly in the Garden of Eden. They were given one command. They were given the freedom of the garden uh, and they had just one command. And that one command was you you mustn't eat from the tree of of the knowledge of, uh, of good and evil. Because if you eat from it, you'll you'll die. So in the beginning, God creates a people in his place, under his rule, and in his blessing. This is God's purpose across time and across history. It's to create a people who are his, in his place, under his rule. And that's what he created. He created Adam and Eve. Uh, They were his people. He put them in his place, and that was the Garden of Eden, and he gave them his rule, his one rule, which is they must need um, from the tree uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. But Adam and Eve fell. They chose, they had one rule, and they chose to get it wrong. And unfortunately, they, they, they fell away. And so actually what they did was they lost um, that place of God's blessing. They were kicked out of the garden. Um, they should have been God's people in his place, but they get God's people kicked out into alienation from God because they decided not to be under his rule. So what does God do? God graciously starts again. And what does he, he starts again by choosing Abraham. And it's an amazing thing because although Abraham is childless, so how is Abraham going to be the people of God? Well, God promises to, to make him a people and God does in the end miraculously give him children when he's too old to have children. And Abraham lives in Ur, but God promises him the land of, uh, the land of Canaan. And so here is God's promise to, uh, to Abraham. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. Make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, essentially. So God starts again. Abraham and his family are going to be God's people. Even though at this point he can't have children, they're going to be in God's place. They're going to be in the land of Canaan, even though at the moment he's in Ur. And they're going to be under God's rule. What has happened to Abraham's family? (coughs) You may remember. What happened to them was they fall into captivity. It wasn't their intention, but they fall into captivity in Egypt. So what happens next? God chooses Moses to be his, his rescuer and his mediator. And so at this point in time, Abraham's family have become, do you remember they became a nation in in Egypt? So at this point, God has fulfilled that part of his promise that says they're going to be a people. But he hasn't yet filled that part of his promise that he's going to give them a land, the land of Canaan. Far from it, they're a captive people um, in Egypt. They're, They're slaves. But God calls Moses to lead them to his place, to this land of Canaan. And through Moses, God's rule is expanded and clarified at Sinai. So these are the people who are supposed to be God's people. They become a people. They're under God's rule. They have the Ten Commandments. And God is leading them to take the place that he has decided for them. And that's the land of Canaan. And that's where we left the story. 
And this is where Joshua um, kicks in. This is where Joshua comes in. So the first part of this background is just to understand the, the, the covenant context of the story so far. That, that God wants a people in his place uh, under his rule. And that's what he's doing. He's doing that for Abraham's family and he's about to do that um, through Joshua. But I want us just to pick up some of these things about, uh, that we know about Joshua. To get to give you a little bit of Joshua's backstory too, if that's the big story. This is the story uh, of Joshua. I don't know whether you remember this story, um, but back in Exodus 17, uh, that's the first time we meet him. Uh, God chooses Joshua to be the, the commander of, of his army. And this was the battle where Moses goes up on the hill and he holds the staff out um, and he holds his arms out. And um, while he's holding his, his arms out, the battle goes well. And if his arms drop, then um, the Amalekites, who they're fighting, get the upper hand. Um, <clears throat> so Moses is on top of the mountain with um, Aaron, uh, his brother, and, and Hur, his helper. And what they do is they sit Moses down on a rock and they basically hold his arms up. But I wonder what it felt like to be Joshua. Can you imagine him down on the plain um, facing this battle and there's Moses and you think, oh, this is going well. And then you kind of like, you see Moses kind of like doing this uh, and you kind of think, oh no, it's, no, it's not going so well. Come on, Moses and Moses. What does Joshua learn? What does Joshua learn? Does he not learn that the battle belongs to the Lord? Later on, you remember in um, another bit of Exodus, Exodus 24, Moses goes up Mount Sinai with the, with the, um, with the 70 elders. Uh, and an amazing thing happens because they see God. In a little episode, which is kind of reminiscent of, of Revelation, um, the 70 elders are Moses and Joshua. See kind of heaven opened and Joshua is there as, as, as Moses' assistant. Um, I don't know whether you've ever been anybody else's assistant, but there aren't many, quite often there aren't many blessings in being somebody's assistant. But for Joshua, he gets to stand and see heaven opened. And then later on we read, um, again in Exodus, um, Moses set up this little tent of, tent of meeting. It's not the tabernacle, uh, but he used to go to a tent. When the, when the people wanted to inquire of God, uh, Moses would go to the tent um, and the pillar of cloud would come down and, and when Moses had finished inquiring, he'd come back again. But at the end of Exodus, it says that Joshua stayed in the tent. So make of that what you will. But it sounds like Joshua uh, spent a lot of time overhearing um, the conversations that God and Moses had. Uh, and he spent uh, a lot of time um, in the presence of God. So that's leadership. What's he learned? He's learned the battle belongs to the Lord. He's learned uh, to see God face to face, that the presence of God is, is primary. Um, and, and he's learned that wisdom uh, comes from, from seeking the Lord. So although he's called Hoshea uh, originally, then um, Moses, we read in the middle of that reading, renames him Joshua. What does Joshua mean? Joshua means God saves. Or it means Yahweh's salvation. And if the Old Testament version of that name is Joshua, the New Testament version of that name is Jesus. God saves. So we're expecting to see some interesting parallels as we go along. 
let's get through this quickly. Um, perhaps more familiarly, there's this story of, of Joshua and Caleb. They're the two faithful spies. That's the bit we read. Um, two different views of people seeing the same circumstances. Twelve people went into that land to, to spy it out. Ten of them said, we can't take it. Two of them said, we can. Uh, and what was the difference? It wasn't their view of the land. The, the, the land was the same. Uh, the view in front of them was the same. Uh, there were some mighty big bunches of grapes, um, but, but there were some mighty big guys there as well with um, some mighty big walls um, around their cities. And the question was, is it worth doing? That's what Moses was asking them. Go and come back and tell me, is, is this worth doing? Joshua and Caleb say, it's worth doing. For we can do it. And the other ten say, we can't. We can't do it. And it's nothing to do with the circumstances. It's to do with their view of the Lord. And it's to do with their conviction or otherwise that God is going with them. And actually, a really important comment from, from Joshua and Caleb. If the Lord is pleased with us, pleased with us he will lead us. The important thing is not how strong they are, how weak we are. The important thing is whether we are staying in a right relationship with the Lord. And if we stay in a right relationship with the Lord, then no battle is unwinnable. So let's just bring this up to, uh, to today. You won't get very far kind of reading through, through the book of Joshua without thinking, well, yeah, this is all very well, but surely um, things have changed for us, have they not? I, I kind of, the last time I strapped on a sword was, was kind of like in a play in my teens. I haven't strapped on a sword since then, and I certainly haven't struck anyone down with it, and I haven't um, put any cities to the fire. Uh, surely, Nick, things, things have changed since then, and you'd be right. They've changed for a number of reasons. We'll, do, we'll get through this in more detail uh, as we go through. Uh, things have changed because Israel couldn't keep the covenant. By the end of Joshua, they, they've, kind of, they've done a great job of beginning to conquer the land. And by the time you then uh, get from Joshua into Judges and Judges into Kings, and by the time you have a king, a King David over the land, it seems like this is now the kingdom of God on earth. Except that. David's son, Solomon, falls, uh, falls away from the Lord and a whole line of kings uh, do the same. There, there are some exceptions, but the rule is that they fall away from the Lord until they're ejected out of the land. Israel couldn't keep the covenant. They couldn't keep their side uh, of the bargain to be God's people and, and obey his commands. And so God does what he's done before. He starts again. But this time he starts with somebody different, somebody very different. He starts with the person of Jesus. And under this new covenant, God's people are those who trust Jesus. It's, no kind of, it's not about national identity now. Those people are those who trust Jesus. God's place where he wants people to be is in Christ. Because those who are in Christ, the meek will inherit the earth 
And when God comes again, when Christ comes again, there will be a whole new world. So God's place is a whole new creation. But for the moment, God's place is in Christ. And God's rule is the same, but what's different is that Jesus has kept God's rule for us. There was always the possibility of Israel falling short of the covenant and the covenant being broken by them. And therefore, they're losing their place and losing God's blessing. For us, Jesus has kept the covenant. He's kept the covenant rules. He has lived a perfectly uh, obedient life. It is now, therefore, an unbreakable covenant, a covenant of a different kind um, that God has made with us. And things have changed. So, you know, read it on the screen or pick up your Bibles. <coughs> things definitely have changed. And it's important, although we can't do this in detail this morning, let's just read this through and, and, and understand that our, our warfare is, is, is different from Joshua's. It's different but similar. Because though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power. That's interesting, isn't it? He says, on the contrary... They're not weak weapons like the world has. They're strong weapons and they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And one of those things that we demolish, arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So we don't have time to solve this all now, but note for the moment, we don't wage war as the world does. What does the world do? It uses military force. It uses coercion. It uses... Pretense. We have other weapons, and our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. Divine power, they have God's power. And what are those strongholds? Well, you can see here that He tells us what the strongholds are, because He uses this word demolish twice in verse 4 and verse 5. The strongholds of these, they are arguments. And the strongholds are pretensions. And the strongholds are thoughts. So this is what we are battling again. We are battling against wrong ideas. We're battling against wrong conceptions. We're battling against wrong thoughts. So where does that tell us the battleground is? Where is the battleground? The battleground is in minds and hearts. It's in our own hearts sometimes. James talks about desires which war against our soul. There's a battle in our own minds. It's a battle to have one mind, to have unity within the church. And we battle against those wrong understandings that that are out there, that not gospel that most of the community believes. Sorry, I forgot to do that. Oh, there was, there's, your, um, there's your word. <laughs> Battleground is, is, is hearts and minds. But what are our weapons? Well, the armour of God from Ephesians 6 uh, gives us a clue. Perhaps you'd like to turn, to that, turn that in your Bibles. It's on page 
1177. And Paul says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We're not fighting against people. We're fighting against the wrong ideas that people have and the wrong concepts that Satan is forever throwing up against the kingdom of God. So Paul says, put on the full armour of, uh, of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything um, to stand. Most of the armour that Paul talks about here is, is defensive. It is armour just to put on to keep us standing. Because at the end of the day, the battle belongs to the Lord. We'll discover that battling for the Lord is not hard. It's actually just standing in the Lord. Uh, and standing with the armour of God is, 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 uh, is perhaps the difficult part. So he says, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. So he says, put on the belt of truth. So in other words, in, in practical everyday life, um, be truthful uh, and be full of, of integrity. And if you're truthful and full of integrity, then you can stand against the devil because he can't, he, he, he can't deceive you um, and he can't undermine you if you're going to hold on to truth. The breastplate of righteousness in place. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. You, you have this righteousness, this justification that, that comes from Christ, but you need to put that on as, as a um, uh, practically. You need to practice righteousness. You need to do the right thing. You can't pretend to put on the breastplate of righteousness, which is the righteousness that God gives you as a gift, and then walk around doing what you like. Uh, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, James says. So everyday practical doing the right thing. Uh, your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. You need to be ready um, with the gospel. Ready to speak when the opportunity comes. Ready to speak and ready to go. I think that's the implication of feet. Um, you need to be ready to move and go if God says. You need to be ready to speak with the gospel. You need to know it and understand it. In addition, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows uh, of the evil one. I think that's a practical use of the promises of God. So when Satan throws accusations against you, you can stand on the promises of God. You can stand and say, uh, I'm, I'm a child of God, John uh, 1.12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And you can speak that to your mind or um, <clears throat> you can pray the promises of God. I've, this is one of the things I've discovered over the summer, which um, I feel really stupid for not doing before, uh, which is that God has given us masses of promises in his word um, to arm us in our praying. So there's, there's a verse somewhere that says God gives sleep to those he loves. Um, and I was sitting on a campsite um, with somebody who was playing their loud music. I don't know, those, if, those of you who camp, um, uh, noise travels right across a campsite from one side to the other. Um, and I was trying to think all the different ways I could pray uh, that this person would shut up. Um, <laughs> um, 
or, or turn his music off or something or kind of, I don't know. I didn't quite get round to praying that a lightning bolt would spike his... <laughs> <coughs> then I thought, well, what I'd been learning was just to pray the promises of God. And I said, Lord, you, it says somewhere in your word that you give sleep um, to those you love. I just uh, I pray, Lord, for some sleep now. And either at that point it stopped or I fell asleep. <laughs> I don't know which, but it was just interesting. Um, but why do we not pray the promises of God? Uh, God is not just a good God who you can uh, go to. God is a God who's promised to be good to you, to be your God and you are his people. So he's promised to be good to you and God has given you specific promises. Why on earth have I not discovered that before? Or maybe I've just forgotten like most of us along the way. So use God's promises as a, as a shield Take up the helmet of salvation. I think that's probably confidence in justification. God has made you right with him. Uh, Wear it like a helmet. Have confidence in that justification. Take up the sword of the spirit. As as has been repeatedly said, this is the the one offensive weapon, which is the, the word of God, which is the Bible. So use the Bible to speak into other people's lives judiciously in a spirit empowered way. You know, if you're going to go into a conflict with somebody who's, uh, particularly if they're, uh, you know, a, a fellow Christian, then the thing to do is to bring the Bible to bear, lovingly and carefully, rather than come in with your own arguments, because somebody can argue back against that. And then Paul says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions. Pray in the Spirit. Spirit-directed, Spirit-empowered prayer for all kinds uh, of prayers and requests, always. Um, staying alert. So our weapons are not the weapons of the world. They're, they're, they're different weapons. They're weapons mainly to stand. So things have changed. Things are different in, the, in this new covenant. But the things that are similar is this. We, we hold out the gospel. If you've got into... Joshua, and you've read the first couple of chapters, and I know some of you have, you discover in chapter 2, a lady called Rahab, um, who is a Canaanite prostitute, turns and and trusts um, in the God of Israel. Joshua and the Israelites implicitly hold out the gospel. They they hold out this uh, offer of, of grace to the people as they go. And we discover along the way that Rahab takes up that offer. We'll find out later on some people called the Gibeonites um, take up that offer. But the gospel always goes out with an offer of peace and a, and a threat of judgment. See, even Jesus uh, said this. After John 3.16, where he says, whoever believes in him shall have eternal life, in John, eight, uh, John 3, 18, he says, whoever believes in him, and he's talking about himself, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So as the gospel goes out, the offer of peace goes out, the, off- the threat of judgment always comes with it. And that's why as Christians you, you're going to get quite polarised uh, reactions to the, to the things you say. We are to some with the fragrance of Christ, to those who are being saved, that's what Paul says, and we are to other people the, the, the stench of death. People have an innate kind of spiritual, spiritual nose, uh, spiritual sense of smell, and so they can smell the gospel. 
And to those who are being saved, that's a wonderful thing. And to those who are not, it's the stench of death. It's, it's implicitly the, the, the threat of death. And some people will pick that up. And as you hold out the gospel, you always hold out those two things. And you will get those two reactions. But, you're really, but you'll be really pleased to know that unlike Joshua, we don't have to carry through the judgment with the sword. Joshua lives in a particular point of time where the nation is, is called by God um, to bring his judgment forward. If they hadn't carried out that judgment, all those people would have been judged anyway. They would all have died and faced God's judgment anyway. It is just that God has brought it forward in time, in this particular uh, moment in, in history. The gospel and is always a life and death matter. And I think Joshua maybe will remind us of that. The gospel is always life and death. You either pick it up and hold on to it and have life, or you reject it and you have death. And like, I think, one of the things we'll discover, like Israel under Joshua, that there's an internal battle. There's a, there's a battle with, with self and sin. There are battle lines inside, and we'll see that. The battle is amongst us. There is a battle to, uh, to maintain our, our unity and fellowship and depth of fellowship. And there is an external part of the battle, which is to rescue people from judgment. And actually, I, I think where the first two are successful, then so is the third. We'll discover, uh, as um, Joshua and, and, and Caleb say, where the Lord leads us. If, if, uh, um, I can't remember how to put it now. Let me see if it's come up. I'll find it at the moment. But if we follow the Lord, if we're faithful to the Lord, then our battle um, will go well. If our internal battle, if we're pure, if we're following God's commands, if we have unity, then our battle to reach people with the gospel, to rescue them, will be successful. But if we're scattered, if we're people who don't take holiness seriously, then our our battle for people's souls is, uh, is undermined. So in practice, I want you to do a couple of things. I want you to see the world differently. I want you to realise you're not fighting against people. I think you knew that already, but if, when you watch the news, you, it's very easy to get distracted and you think there are people doing some horrible things and you get very angry with them. Or maybe you don't, but, I don't know, but some people do. We're not fighting against people we're fighting for their salvation. We're fighting against the things that those people believe. But they are uh, people like any other who can turn and, and, and trust the gospel, whoever they are. So don't get bogged down in hating people. You have divinely powerful weapons. Okay? That's an amazing thing. We, <clears throat> so again, when we watch the news, we feel like a minority uh, we feel like, um, you know, any kind of um, vicar or, or Christian worker in a, in, a, in a drama is always either the village idiot or a paedophile. Um, we, we are always being pulled down. Um, but don't forget that you have divinely powerful weapons. You have your life. By that I mean your life lived as a witness. Your love shown uh, to one another and, and, and to people you know. 
you have the gospel and you, and you have prayer. And they are divinely powerful weapons. Okay, so don't be put off by the, by the fact that, that um, you know, if, if ISIS make gains in the Middle East, which thankfully they're not doing uh, at the moment, or if somebody with some strange idea makes um, gains in the States, oh, that's all well and good. You can, uh, you, can, you can pray for that, but fight on your front line. Don't be distracted from wherever your front line is. Don't, dis- don't let you despair of what happens in the wider world, and we see a lot of it. Stop you fighting um, for the gospel, for people's salvation on your front line. And remember the battle belongs to the Lord. He fights for his faithful people. We'll see that. I think that'll be one of the big lessons we'll come through in Joshua. And remember you've been promised a place. In my father's house are many rooms. If it wasn't so, Jesus said, I would have told you. But in my father's house, there is a room, there is a place. One day, it'll all be over. The battle will be over. And you will be one of God's people in his place, his, his new world, his, uh, his new city, his, his big house, all these different pictures. And you will perfectly obey his rule and perfectly know his blessing and you'll walk in his presence and it'll be like Eden all over again. It's going to be wonderful. And just a thought to finish. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land. If we're going to go and battle now, this term we're going to battle um, for people's souls, for people's hearts and minds, for a trust of the gospel in their minds. Battle belongs to the Lord, and if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land. So don't get confused about land. When it says land, I think we need to think kingdom. Kingdom of God. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will extend his kingdom in this place. A kingdom which we already know flows with milk and honey, and he will give it to us, or rather, in a New Testament context, he will give them to us. Only don't rebel of the Lord, and don't be afraid of the people. Because we will devour them. Well, we won't devour them, but we will. Their defences are down. There is nothing that can stop the Lord reaching in and rescuing them for Christ. Their protection is gone. The Lord is with us. And don't be afraid of them.